This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we are talking about fracking, or hydraulic fracturing, if you want to sound like someone unfamiliar with the process. And if you want to skip my monologue and head straight to the interview, that begins at 4.30. I've mentioned my history with the coal sector a few times on this podcast, and coal was my entry point into the larger energy industry more than a decade ago. But you know, I'm sure you can point to moments in your life when the whole course of your life changes. For me, one of those moments happened 1 January in 2010. I was still involved with the coal groups at that time, and one weekend, a buddy of mine asked if I wanted to go deer hunting in the Texas Hill Country. I said, sure, it'll be a change of pace from hipstery Austin. So, it's the morning after our first hunt, it's 6 degrees outside, and we've seen nothing. My buddy's dad picks us up from the stand, and during the ride back, asks me, so, Mr. Coleman, what do you think about natural gas? I said, it's fine, but the amount of water used for fracking is going to become a big public policy issue. Well, he said, what if I told you I was developing a recycling technology for that? I told him some folks in Austin might be really interested. Flash forward a few months later, and I was now working for a startup out of that guy's kitchen. In those early days, we thought it might be a good idea for me to go back to North Louisiana and try to drum up business for water recycling in that area, which is collectively known as the Haynesville Shale Play. I thought, what a great idea. This is my hometown. I know these people. This'll be a slam dunk. It was not. I guess you never really can go home again. For starters, water recycling didn't make sense in the Haynesville. If your company made it work, good for you. But every indication I received was that the water sent down for fracking never came back up. This phenomenon is known as flowback water, and that's what we were recycling to use on future wells. But the flowback numbers were so low, a recycling operation just didn't make sense. What's worse is that I was completely delusional about my return to Louisiana. See, I'm one of those sad folks who was a hotshot in high school. Valedictorian, letterman, senior class president. I pictured myself as some first son of Bossier Parish who's returning from a long absence to bring this incredible technology to the unwashed. Turns out they were doing just fine without it. This lesson was never so stark as when I signed up as a sponsor and exhibitor at the Oilman's Bass Fishing Tournament a little south of town. I'd set up displays at conventions for years. So, like a big dork, I brought out a TV and our roll-up displays and set up an exhibit booth in the parking lot of the boat launch. By comparison, all the other vendors brought out trailers. We're talking 30-foot goosenecks with 20-foot smokers or deep fryers. This is Louisiana, y'all, and while I sat under my little tent alone, I watched dozens of vendors cook up Cajun specialties like it was Saturday night at Tiger Stadium. Another company 
company, a wireline operator, completely emasculated my setup when they hired about a dozen hot chicks, slipped them into tiny little white tank tops, and let them chat up the fishermen. By about mid-afternoon, they were washing trucks, and I knew at that point that I wasn't even playing in the same sport, yet alone the same league. This whole episode was a big learning experience for me. Growing up in the same zip code doesn't mean a thing if you haven't lived there in 13 years. There is a time to do business and a time to cut loose, especially when your state motto is, let the good times roll. And when it comes to business development, nothing beats personal relationships. And a free truck wash doesn't hurt. Our guest today is Charlie Bird, Executive Director of the West Virginia Independent Oil and Gas Association. We'll explain that independent part in just a bit. Charlie's a stand-up guy, and I was really appreciative of his time because he agreed to sit down with me during their two-day annual conference. He insisted on it. Much like the Haynesville, West Virginia is part of the Marcellus Shell play. That play is primarily West Virginia and Pennsylvania. New York doesn't frack, but there's gas down there too. Ohio is a mix of the Marcellus and Utica plays. And this region is important because it is the closest play to some of the largest population centers in the country. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Charlie Bird. Here we are, Charlie Bird. You're the Independent Oil and Gas Association. Elaborate on the independent part. Well, independent's pretty easy. There's independents and there's majors. It has nothing to do with the size of the company or the number of wells they own. You can be an independent with three wells and you can be an independent producer with uh, 5,000 wells. An independent producer produces, takes it to a pipeline and it's shipped out someplace to be used. A major, a Chevron, an Exxon, those folks who have oil production, natural gas production, they take the oil production, they take it to their own refineries, they refine it into other products. That's what classifies a major, one who does something more with their own product. Interests different from major and an independent? I don't know that there'd be. I think majors, of course, would have different abilities, different numbers of cash streams, so you could be a little more risk-taking in one end of your business if the other was very stable. I think for an independent producer, you sort of live and die on producing wells, making money, and putting that money back into new wells and, and into your business and into your community. The majors may see that a little bit differently, but from a basic, I'm going to produce energy, I don't know that there's a lot of difference in the philosophy, the mindset behind producing energy for our country. What is the story we're not hearing about the Marcellus? A year ago, we had 30 rigs running in the state. I think we have nine rigs running now. And maybe the untold story is that with how prolific these wells are, every time we drill one, it just continues to drive our price down. And several years ago, the Appalachian Basin was the great storage field for the Northeast, and producers were paid a premium to produce here. And I think there's a real misconcept about what natural gas producers are getting per MCF here, as opposed to what they're getting in other parts of the country. When we talk about the Marcellus, you know, are we, all, are we just exclusively talking about gas here? Are we talking about also some oil production? We're talking about liquids. We're talking about ethane mm -hmm. in particular. That is attached to 
the gas coming out of the Marsalis and the Utica shale. And so this 450 or 500,000 barrels of ethane a day that we're producing just here in West Virginia, there's very little market for it. Uh, one time there was, but again, every well we drill is just as prolific or more prolific than the one before it in terms of natural gas and most of the time ethane. When they started developing the Marcellus originally, they were going for those only on a wet side. And so you were getting your natural gas and of course then you were getting the ethanes and the propanes and the other, the other liquids attached to that. But as we have drilled ourselves into this glut, now there's no market for the ethane. So that is why three ethane cracker plants are under consideration. And so they desperately need a market for the ethane. And you know, if you build it, they will come. Is there really any room to talk about crude? There is, there is so little crude in the state of West Virginia. We, we produce about 1% of the nation's oil. So while there are oil wells and oil production, it certainly is not uh, even remotely close to being on the same level as a Texas or an Oklahoma or, or states that produce the lion's share of the crude oil in our nation. This is something that a lot of people are asking. Is $80 a barrel oil in the foreseeable future I think so. by the end of the decade? Oh, yeah, I think so. I don't think there's any question that, that oil will make a comeback. It's just a matter of you take a look at what others overseas decide they want to do with the market and we are pretty captive to what they want to do. Do you think there will ever be a change to that world order? I think there could be. I don't think there's any question that the United States could be absolutely 100% energy independent. We have the Bakken, which is a phenomenal oil play. And, you know, we were there. And, you know, oil was, what, $130 a barrel and, and everyone is happy. And I don't think it took OPEC nations very long to realize, hey, now we kind of reeled them in, the, in a little bit and they've, they've made trillions of dollars investment in producing billions of uh, barrels a year. And, and if we just kind of drop our price, that'll, that'll go away. And it did. Marcellus is big on gas. What do you think the break-even point is on fracking for gas? I have heard operators talk that they could drill on $4 gas. So I think there has to be some, some things that have to happen. I think it has to be their own equity production. I think they probably have to have good access to lines and maybe even ownership of their rigs and a good handle on their subcontractors and their costs. Gas is right now $3. No, we're drilling. I mean, we're drilling on $3 gas here. But I'm going to guess that the companies that are drilling could be hedged into that four, four and a quarter range. And that is why they can continue to take advantage of producing under their hedge. What do you think the optimistic price would be? Where would the industry comfortably like to see gas? I think most people would say, gee, if we could just get back to five, 550, wow, you know, that was probably one of our worst economic downturns and we could thrive in that now. The things that you would have expected to happen have happened. They have reduced expenses. They have not replaced employees. They have done those kind of things to downsize operations, to lean up their operations and become much more efficient. And here's the deal too. I think we're coming into maybe a shale 2.0. We had our, our first round in the early part of the decade, and so it, it was kind of one of these things where the dinosaurs died. And so what's emerged is more an efficient version of that, wouldn't you say? Well, I would say those who are now still able to explore, drill, produce, they have become much better at that than they were previous to this period of mergers and acquisitions. I mean, there's always been mergers and acquisitions, but now, basically here in our basin, these mergers and acquisitions or multi-million dollar mergers. It would shock you. We talked about getting a market for gas, especially up here. Why haven't we capitalized on trying to create a greater demand for natural gas? The obvious question might be, why don't we see more CNG vehicles on the road? Well, I think we had a process here. I mean, we had that in, in the mid-1980s. We had quite uh, an infrastructure for natural gas-fueled vehicles uh, up and down the highways here in West Virginia. And then gasoline prices swung based on oil prices, and that just sort of went away. And I, I suspect the 
there could be some hesitancy in saying, okay, if we turn around and really invest the kind of money it takes to get that back, then at what point does other pipeline takeaways take effect, other markets develop, and all of a sudden we start seeing rising prices again, and then it becomes disadvantageous against gasoline prices. CNG, let's talk about LNG. Why haven't we seen more exporting activity? Well, I think that number one, you have to get permission to export LNGs out of the country, and I think once that permission was given to Dominion uh, Resources over at their Code Point facility in Maryland, so an immediate revamping of that Code Point facility, it appears to be on schedule to come online in the fall of 17, and that will take natural gas supplies out of this basin to Code Point, Maryland, to be liquefied and shipped to places across the world. How do you think that'll affect our prices? I don't think it'll affect the prices very much. Number one is the volumes just aren't great enough, but as others develop, okay, let the market conditions handle what the market conditions were handled, and do not pick and choose winners based on commodity prices. A good, healthy oil and natural gas industry is just as healthy as a good chemical industry. What do you think would do the best for getting natural gas prices where you'd like to see it? I think we have two prongs. We have a new administration in Washington, D.C. I think there's a resurgence of faith in our nation, and I think you're going to see economic development happen that you haven't seen happen in the last six to eight years. Secondly, there are several pipelines in the hopper here where these 40-inch pipelines, these takeaways for the natural gas and liquids being produced will be tremendously beneficial. It just simply supply and demand 101. The more pipes we can build to get gas to areas that we don't traditionally serve now will help us get better commodity prices. The other side of that coin will be then there will be more drilling. And it seems like every time we drill, then the swing comes back that all of a sudden we've plummeted our pricing. But I'm hoping that the ability to maybe these bigger companies manage that and get us to where we can be more even healed in pricing. We talked a little bit about this region. We talked about some opportunities, especially with the LNG. We're closer to a lot of bigger population centers than places out in the southwest. What advantages do operators have here in the northeast as opposed to a blue blood like Texas? In West Virginia, you're located within about a six-hour drive of 75% of the population of the nation. For us, we have always done what we've always done. We have been a supplier of energy to the entire northeast coast, and that will never change for us, us Pennsylvania. We have always been great providers of energy for our nation's capital and everything north, and we will continue to do that. However, there's only so much natural gas you can sell in those traditional markets. They're pretty saturated, so now it's markets other places. Can we get gas west and north? Can we get gas south? So I guess the question is, more pipelines, huh? Takeaways are good things. You don't move a million vehicles on a two-lane highway. You move them on interstates, and you build an infrastructure to move vehicles. And if you just use the analogy that a vehicle is a molecule of natural gas, it's really not hard to figure out. You just have to have pipes big enough to take lots of molecules in lots of different directions and supply clean, burning, energy-efficient natural gas for our country. Keystone was a big oil story over the last year. Why was that? It befuddles me that we would thwart any project that would provide energy to our nation from our friends. There are two and a half million miles of pipeline across the country. 72,000 alone are crude. Is there any reason why Keystone would have been any different? No, no. In my world, it's a question of you're guaranteeing energy for our country, and it, it comes from our friends in Canada. Or it would have gone overseas was the alternative, right? would have gone to Asia. Absolutely. They're, it would have been consumed somewhere else. They will and did seek other markets for their product, just like we do. So I'm glad it got turned around. But Charlie, you talk a lot about there being risks of gluts of supply. Are there risks of bringing down? I'd rather take my risks with our friends than take risks of getting those molecules of carbon from people who don't always necessarily like us.
Charlie, let's talk about water. Water is the reason that I'm in this industry. What changes have you seen by the way water is being used for fracking operations? Well, you know, when they first started the Marcellus, you know, the big thing was, you know, how, where are we going to get our water? What are we going to do? And, and all those kind of things. Well, you know, it's all morphed into they reuse water. There's water impoundments and they treat the water and the water they bring out from one frack job is retained to use for another. And the whole thing has changed in that regard. And then plus the shipping of water across our highways has changed. We've had companies build 40 miles of pipeline off the Ohio River to eliminate thousands of trucks on our highways. And so they have really thought through how we're going to provide for safety of the people of West Virginia and Southeast Ohio. So that's been a good thing. Just a complete embracing of the safety involved in the transport of water and fluids to and from well sites has changed dramatically. You had a board meeting yesterday, talked a lot about legislative agenda for West Virginia. What efforts are you seeing being made to encumber the industry and people's heat <laughs> and ability to cook their food and consume power? Well, I'll tell you what, I work for a bunch of guys who are the doggonest bunch of brave risk takers I've ever met in my life. I've been in this industry 40 years and it just it continues to amaze me that they will go out in the middle of a field and put a bit in the ground and know that two weeks later they're going to be at depth and, and they're going to find natural gas down there to help supply energy for our country. These folks have a passion for what they do. Natural gas is the absolute fuel of choice when it comes to heating our homes and heating our water and more industrial applications than I can name if I had a week. Is it important that we are able to use this natural resource in an effective, efficient way? Yes, but the newest trend is power production. And you know what? We're here to help that. It was our former president who said you can build a power plant if you want to build a coal power plant in the Canada, I'll put you out of business. And they meant that. And so this carbon-hating attitude of the previous administration, but natural gas is proven to be a cleaner, burning, more energy-efficient, environmentally friendly fuel than others. And when you compare what it costs to bring that product to market, the only way that other green energies even remotely compete is because of their subsidies. And we get no subsidies from our government to do. If you know an oil and gas producer in your community, trust me, he's not being subsidized by anybody. He's doing this all on his own. He, he gets his money, he drills his well, and he hopes that uh, he can make enough return on it to uh, drill another one. And the government gets and the tax receipts. Severance yeah. taxes, heck yes. Yeah, so Severance taxes, state. yeah. Let's talk about politics. You're going to divide half the country, Donald Trump, fan. No, oh, great guy. Do I like everything he says? No. Does he react more quickly sometimes than I'd like for him to? Yes. But you know what? He is not a seasoned politician. Let's start there. But he has been a very astute businessman, and he has been extremely successful in being able to negotiate deals and do things in his personal life that have benefited him tremendously. I think our country owes itself the opportunity to give this guy a chance to see what he can do. I'm anxious to see what this first year or so will bring us. It can't be, from an energy perspective, it could not have gotten any worse than the previous eight years uh, that, that we've spent trying to survive and being attacked every day by the federal EPA and others who just simply wanted to put us out of business. Charlie, you're right. It feels like the industry was under attack for those last eight years. Now, what let me say, it didn't feel like it. We were under attack. Oh, I stand corrected. <laughs> what do you think Trump has promised that has you encouraged, Charlie? I think he's made it very clear that he's going to look into our regulatory schemes in this country and how we are regulated and how can we be more business friendly. And that is really the key to this whole thing, is finding a way to say yes with some conditions instead of being told, no, you can't do something. 
We talk a lot about federal regulations, everyone's saying cut regulations. You're a policy guy. What are some of the biggest that can immediately help the industry? Oil and gas is no different than any other business in the country. We rely on good regulations in order to operate. Regulations are very important. The best regulatory schemes are those that provide surety out to the future, not ones that change over a whim, over an executive order. Give us the opportunity to be engaged in creating a fair regulatory process. And you'll not see industry raise, not just oil and gas, you'll not see industries raise a fuss if they know that my costs, my regulatory programs have been vetted and we can proceed forward and we know where we are today is where we will be in two years and we can plan accordingly. So in your mind, it's really not necessarily regulation A, it's just I need some clarity. Clarity, because, clarity and surety. Right. We're talking about the infrastructure bill. If you're redlining that bill, what do you add? To um, eliminate the moratorium offshore drilling. We have lots of oil offshore. We know we can do it in a safe, responsible manner. Final question. I'm going to name a couple of different energy sources, and I want you to give me a short answer, first thoughts that come to your head. Natural gas. Clean, energy efficient, and abundant. Crude oil. Crude oil. Our key to future energy independence from gasoline. Nukes. Nukes. We've been wonderful. We've been doing it for years. Our military knows how to get that done best. West Virginia coal. West Virginia coal, very important to the state of West Virginia in terms of investment jobs and tax structure. We need a healthy uh, coal industry in West Virginia. Wind. Hey, wind don't always blow. <laughs> Solar. And sun don't always shine. And they get subsidies. I don't think it's right. Hydroelectric. Hey, you know what? We have so little hydroelectric here, but it's uh, absolutely hydroelectric is key to power and, and such in the, in the western part of the country. Geothermal. Geothermal. Hey, you know, it's there and uh, maybe untapped. It's there but untapped. EV, electric vehicles. Well, you know what? Uh, I've, I've had them and I've used them, but I think disposal of batteries and that sort of thing still needs to be considered. Nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion. Hey, uh, no comment. <laughs> I don't know about nuclear fusion. We'll all be dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie Bird, been great talking to you. Thank you so hey, much. You're welcome. You have a good one. That was Charlie Bird, executive director of IOGA, the West Virginia Independent Oil and Gas Association, from their winter conference last February. Charlie and I met in the ballroom of the Charleston Marriott, and within minutes, that room was filled with hundreds of people to see this guy. Jim Justice, the newly elected governor of West Virginia. Governor Justice, a Democrat, won in a state that voted nearly three to one for Donald Trump. I've mentioned in the Clear Path episode that Governor Justice is a climate change skeptic, and I would have asked him about that during a brief Q&A. But the Q&A was for the real media, and they deserve it, not me. I truly support your energy. I love the potential that is beyond belief. I will try in any way to address your struggles and make them better. Thank you again to Charlie, Lori Smith, and the entire staff at IOGA for setting up what was my first interview for this podcast during a hectic week for them. We'll be revisiting the oil and gas sector with some great episodes in the next few weeks, so stay tuned for that. All interviewees for this podcast are sent a raw and finished recording of their interviews before the podcast debuts. You can find some pictures from both the IOGA meeting and the Bass Tournament I mentioned in the monologue over at Instagram. My handle 
is host energy. My email is host at energy cast.com. And the website is energy cast.com for more information about the podcast and each episode. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop. That's S T R O O P E loops. That wraps up episode seven, and we have no intention of stopping. This is going to be a weekly program. Next week, we're talking the business of greenhouse gases and the future of carbon trading. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.